The following sermon is by Manny Alaniz, pastor at St. Stephen's Chapel in Northwest San Antonio, Texas. For more information, for prayer, or to support us financially, please visit our website at ststephenschapel.org or call us at 210-241-5969. A few days ago, while I was preparing for this sermon, I ran across a very interesting article about a German composer, and I posted it on, on social media, and some of you read it. Uh, his name, he was a, a composer that lived in the 17th and 18th century. His name was Johann Sebastian Bach. Johann Sebastian Bach was an incredible composer. Uh, he wrote numerous comp compositions that have withstood the test of time. What caught my eye, though, was all the tragedy, all the tragedy that followed this man throughout his entire life. Johann Sebastian Bach and his first wife lost their little daughter. And then they lost three sons who died of numerous illnesses and diseases. Then Bach loses his first wife. She also dies. Bach eventually remarries. He had a second wife, have children. And unfortunately, tragically, they lose four more daughters and three sons who die. Again, of various different things. Of the 20 children that, that Bach had, 11 perish, they die. Now, throughout the years since his time, many people have wondered how Bach managed to handle these losses. How has he been able to cope with death, the death of so many beloved children and a, and a beloved wife, his first wife. But more importantly for some people than that, how could he continue with his music? How could he continue to compose the most beautiful musical uh, music that the world has ever heard? How could he have continued to do so? Well, the answer is found because Bach was a devout Christian. He was a, a true believer. And we know this because of his proclamation. But we also notice that he dedicated his entire life to the glory of God. And we see this in his music. Uh, when he writes a, a, a master, one of his masterpieces, he ends it with the, with the word solo deo gloria, which means to the glory of God alone. He also begins his, his compositions by writing, Lord help, Lord help. 
some have said that Bach's music was a prayer. It was a prayer. That's why, and they even encourage people to, to pray during his compositions. When they hear his music being played, they say, pray. It, it is great for prayer. Many others who have studied the man believe that Bach's music uh, was a conversation between man and God. This is how Bach dealt with the pain and sorrow of his life. He dealt with it by worshiping God, by worshiping God first and foremost with his, with his entire life. Johann Sebastian Bach himself died on July 28, 1750. See, that's the reality. That's the reality for us, isn't it? He died. We will all die. Unless Christ returns before we die. But the fact, the reality of the matter is, we will all die. In fact, I, I can venture to say that we all know a loved one, someone close to us that, that has perished, that has died. And, and it has certainly brought us, uh, it has, certainly has driven us to grieve, trying to understand the why. Sooner or later, all of us will face death. Hebrews Chapter 9, verse 27 says this. It says, And just as it is appointed for man and woman to die once, and after that comes what? Comes judgment. Judgment. We die. Comes judgment. Our passage today is about final judgment. Final judgment. That's what Jesus is speaking about. Now, why should we care about what the, the the passage? Why should we care about the text? Why should it matter to us? It shouldn't matter because of the the critical issue of our text is final judgment. Final judgment is at stake. Our eternal souls are at stake. So, as we turn to our text, we see that Jesus's method of expression. Now, we're going. Uh, through the Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we're coming toward the end of it. And as we've gone through the Sermon on the Mount, we have noticed that Jesus has a pattern when he goes from one pericope, one passage to another. He has a, a consistent pattern. He makes a blunt assertion. He makes a blunt statement. And then he illustrates and elaborates, and, and, and then he amplifies what he's talking about. He starts explaining his assertion, his statement. That's what Christ is doing in our passage today. He makes a blunt statement, assertion. He starts off in the text saying, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And then our Lord continues by saying, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. See, the problem that many, even many theologians have had with this passage is that they tend to isolate the very first 
verse, uh, verse 21. They isolate verse 21 from the other two verses. And, and when you do that, you start thinking that it's about works, that it's about behavior. And it is, but that's not all it's about. We have to put all three verses together to get a clearer understanding of what our Lord Jesus Christ is talking about. The message he is conveying to you and I today and to the people that were there at the time he preached this sermon. Remember, who is he preaching to? He's preaching to his disciples. He's preaching to even us today. That is pre-cross, and we're living now post-resurrection. But if they still, it still means something today. God's word is a living word. Now, there were other people there that were just observing, and that's the world. God is, Jesus is not preaching to the world. Now, the world says, see some benefits of what Jesus is saying, and they like some of the stuff he's talking about. But they cannot, it, it, as we will see, it, it cannot resonate with them. It, they cannot compre totally comprehend it. They cannot totally embrace it the way his disciples are called to embrace it. Again, so when you isolate verse 21 from the other two verses, you have a misinterpretation of the passage, and we don't want to do that. We have to look at the passage as a whole. When we do that, we can clearly see that Jesus is talking about true righteousness, true holiness, revealed in faith and in works, in faith and in works. That is doing the will of the Father, doing the will of the Father. That's action. That's some action here. This is, this is doing something. What is the will of the Father? You know, funny, that question was asked by some of Jesus's uh, when he walked this earth, some of the some of the people that were walking with him went, went up to him and asked him that very question. And in the, the Gospel of St. John, chapter 6, verse 28 and 29, they say, What must we do to be doing the works of God? And Jesus responds to their question. He says, This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. Ah, the work of God is to believe in Jesus. That is the work of God, to believe in Jesus. Christ goes on. He goes on to say in verse 40, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven. I'm sorry, verse 40. Here it is. Okay. Jesus goes on to say in verse 40, For this is the will of my Father. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in Him, believes in Him, shall have what? Eternal life. Eternal life, and I will raise him or her up at the last day, on the last day. That is the question. But that's the question. We're, we're having it. That's faith. Faith in Christ reveals that we not only believe in the promises of God, believe in the work of Christ. It also involves doing the will of God, doing. That involves the mind. It also involves the, our behavior. 
our behavior. For it stands written, and, and we read this, these verses earlier, and if they're in our bulletin, and well, part of it's in our bulletin, but if we go back to Ephesians chapter 2, and we go to verses 8 and 9, it says this, for by the grace, uh, for by grace, that's God's grace, you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Okay, so the reason I put that in there is I want you to understand what is taking place here. We are not being obedient to be saved. We're being told that we're already saved, that God is the one that saves. It is God who saves us. And we're called by faith to believe that God saves us. That's the work. I mean, that's the faith to believe that God is the one who accomplishes our salvation. And it's done and it is accomplished through the life and work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ on the cross and in his resurrection. That's how God saves his people. As far as the work of our salvation, the work of our salvation, we have nothing to do with it. It's the work of God. And, and look, that's intentional because so many people want to say, well, you know what? It, it, there must have been something in me that God likes when he said, okay, Manny, you know what? You were a bad guy, but you were a cop for 27 years. There's got to be something good in you. Okay, you can come. I'll give you grace. No, no, there was nothing, nothing in me. In fact, I didn't even know, I wasn't even aware, I was aware that there was a God because of everything else and because of what I heard. But in my darkness, before salvation, I couldn't hear him. I couldn't see him. It was in darkness. There is nothing that we do that merits our salvation. There is nothing in us that God looks upon that he says, yes, okay, he's got a little bit of good in him, or she. There's nothing like that. Everything, we're totally corrupt. If there was, we would boast. And that's, what, that's why Paul says that. They let us not boast because there's nothing, nothing in you. It was by the grace of God, his own kindness, his loving kindness that he gave you, that he laid, that the Holy Spirit came upon you and gave you, that removed your heart of stone and gave you a heart of flesh and, and sprinkled you with water from above. And you were, and now when you heard the gospel, you responded. It was going to happen. It was going to happen first because God laid grace on you. God laid grace on you. That is, that's it. But the response was going to happen. It had to happen. Because now you're being taken out of the darkness, you're seeing the light. That's wonderful. Wonderful. Nothing we do earns our salvation. But here's what we can rejoice in. This is what we must rejoice in. We are the benefactors. We are the beneficiaries of the grace. We are the beneficiaries of God's salvation. That is what we can rejoice in. His loving kindness is glorious. We do nothing to earn it. We have done nothing. It was because he chose us before the foundation of the creation of the universe. We spoke the creation into existence. 
he knew you. He knew me. He knew us, his people. It, 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 you know, the, the analogy has been made before about how God sealed his covenant with Abraham. You remember the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15? You remember that story? Abraham is wondering, like, you know, are you sure? You know, you said I'm going to have all these, you know, he's over there. He's still trying to get it. He's still trying to, to understand what is going on. And, and what does God do? He shows, he makes a covenant. He shows his covenant with Abraham. He, what does he do? He, he tells Abraham to go out and get ass some animals and, and birds. And then he commands Abraham to cut him in half. So you can imagine the bloody mess that was all over the place. Blood, he had blood all over him. There was blood everywhere. Everybody, he splits everything in half, lays it all out. And you know what he does next? He tries to keep the buzzards away and tries to keep the birds away and the, probably the coyotes and everything else from trying to eat those carcasses. And then as nighttime came, as darkness came over him, he falls asleep. And in a vision, he sees a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch pass between the pieces the carcasses, the blood. He sees that. That's God sealing, showing Abraham his covenant promise with him is sealed in blood. Blood. None of those carcasses, but of the blood of someone even, <laughs> the ultimate sacrifice, his son, who, the Messiah who was still to come. God seals his promise to us in Christ. You know, Abraham's part was what? Sleeping, sleeping and believing, trusting, believing in the promises. Our faith and what God has done for us is revealed in a what? Profession of faith. That's why we make everyone come up here when they join our church for the first time, when they make their first profession. What's a profession? You, you have a confession and a profession, and they're similar. But a profession is when you profess to everyone here in the whole world that Jesus is your Lord. He is the Lord and Savior of your life. You profess that. So you make a profession of faith. Our profession of faith is followed up by a changed life, a changed life, change in behavior. It is not legalism to be obedient when it happens this way. What's legalism? Legalism is when you have to do stuff so that you can earn your way to heaven. It was a holy day of obligation the other day, and I am going to be at. I went to church. I have checked the mark. I have done what I was supposed to or whatever it may be, I crossed myself and I drove past the cross in a church. I mean, that's legalism. I have to do these things to be saved. That is not what's going on here. You are already saved. You were saved by the grace of God. You are being obedient because you were saved by the grace of God. And it comes through conversion. We'll talk about that in just a second, but it comes through being born again. You're a new creature. You're a new creation. A new human. So if there's no change in your life, perhaps conversion is still pending. I, there has to be change. There's conviction going on. Our behavior, our obedience is revealed. That's how we reveal our profession of faith. 
through faith is what God has done for us. The proper response, the proper response to the call of Jesus for salvation's sake requires a verbal confession or profession that he is Lord, accompanied by moral obedience. Moral obedience. That is the will of God according to our passage. What's moral obedience? Behavior, right and wrong. That is right, that is wrong. I prefer to do wrong, but you're called and commanded to be obedient, to do what's right. And it's easy for a lot of stuff we do. It's easy to do some stuff to be morally right with God on, on a lot of stuff. But it's the stuff that you are having problems with. It's the stuff that you desire to sin. It's the desired sin, so to speak. It is eating at you. It is eating at you. Uh, we, we talked about that last Sunday sermon. It is crouching at your door. It desires, it desires to have you. The obedience is a conscious effort to turn away from that sin. To turn away from the time that I'm sitting over there watching HBO and Showtime and there's all this nudity and you say, no, I'm really watching it for the, you know, the fast cars. Oh, I'm really watching it for the, oh yeah, there's a plot. Yeah, that's it, that's it. I'm just gonna endure all the nudity. All the filth that's in there. Oh, yeah, I was just, yeah, God knows I don't really want to see that. Well, what about you turning that thing off and say, you know what, that's not even going to tempt me. I don't need to watch that. That's obedience. It, it, is, it is active in, in our lives. God, God's work. That is our obedience flows from our faith. Jesus Christ. It flows from that. It must flow from that. If it doesn't flow from our faith in Christ, it's legalism. They operate together. This is what's taking place in our passage. You will recall the last time we, we, we were talking about the Sermon on the Mount, which was a couple of Sundays ago. Jesus was addressing false teachers, false prophets. In this passage, Jesus is addressing false teaching, a false teaching by false prophets. Theologian uh, J.C. Ryle writes, By a passage of heart, piercing application, he, that is Jesus, turns from false prophets to false prophets professors, from unsound teachings to unsound hearers. Theologian R.W.G. Tasser says, It is not only false teachers who make the narrow way difficult to find and still harder to tread. A man may also be grievously self-deceived, grievously self-deceived. We can be deceived by a false teacher, a false prophet, a false preacher. They're all over the place. They're all over the place. And their false teaching can deceive the many. 
That's why you're called to read scripture. That's why it's it's if you if you're at a church, you want them to preach through the gospel. You want them to preach the gospel. You want it to be God-centered and gospel-driven. The interesting thing, the, the and, and this is what Christ is talking about, is very it's fascinating. There may be some people, some preachers that are preaching through the gospel. They may even preach the gospel correctly and still not be saved. They themselves still may not believe what they're preaching. They're just good at it. We do professors. I knew professors that do. I'm still going to school, but at school, professors that knew scripture, they were, they were experts in the Old or New Testament. But they didn't believe, but they could teach it and teach it correctly. That's what's fascinating. That's interesting. Like, how can that be? But that's what Christ is talking about. False teaching and or false understanding of what Christ is saying, is, it, it can be disastrous, to be sure. What Christ is telling us in our text is one of the most astounding statements that has that has ever been made in the Bible. What he's saying in verse 21. It's astounding. He's saying somebody could say, Lord, Lord, Jesus is my Lord. And still not enter into the kingdom of heaven. That is it's it's astounding, it's terrifying. It's terrifying, even to believers. Listen to what John Stott wrote, and I totally agree with what he said, what he says here. John Stott wrote, Jesus confronts us with himself. He sets before us a radical choice between obedience and disobedience and calls us to an unconditional commitment of the mind, the will, and our lives or life, to his teaching. When we proclaim Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord of our life, God, Christ, is calling us to an unconditional commitment of our mind, our will, and our lives to his teaching. Have you ever been confronted by Christ? Have you ever been confronted by Christ? Everybody has to deal with him. Post-resurrection, everybody has to deal with Jesus, whether they, whether they want to admit that or not. Now, we can either receive him by the grace of God, reject him, or just not do nothing, just ignore it. That's interesting. Let's keep going with our lives. And that, and that type of ignorance or that ignoring him is a rejection. Every single person has to deal with Christ. That's what makes this passage so difficult because of what Jesus says. Anyone can say, Lord, Lord, Jesus is Lord. Anyone can say it. Anyone can say the words of a confession. But only a person who calls himself or herself a disciple can make a false profession of faith. Now listen to me. Only a person that calls himself, that dare calls himself a disciple of Christ can make a false profession. See, when you 
in your words say Jesus and profess Jesus as Lord, that means you're obviously a disciple or wanting to be a disciple or thinking you're a disciple. But when those words are empty, when there is no when there's no fruit, so to speak, then you're making a false profession, and that's what Christ is talking about, a false profession of faith. That's what he's warning us about. We could make a real verbal profession of faith and, and not be moral, and not be moral. There's no morality with it. There's no behavior, and that is very, that is very real. A false profession of faith has only to do with a person's lips and not their hearts. But there's something else that's involved in this, and this is, this is where it's at. To make a real profession of faith, you have to be born again. You have to be born again. You have to be born again. Dif different people go through conversion very differently. Some have a very dramatic rebirth. Others don't. Others have a different rebirth, but you have to be born again. That is when the profession of faith is real. Because, see, when you're born again, again, we, we talked about it just now. You're a new person. You're not the old you. When you stumble, you, you grieve. You're sad because you, you, you sinned against the person you love the most. You're sad and you want, to, you want that separation to go away. You want to go back and tie, grab onto the cloak of Christ. You can't stand being away from him. And it's certainly a learned thing, and it takes, when you go through this process of being made holy, sanctification, you're going to grow. You're going to realize that things are going on. Things are happening. Things are real. Some of us have thought that we've made a profession years ago, but nothing ever happened. And one day, all of a sudden, bang, something happened. Dare we say rebirth? Some of us heard the gospel read for years, so we could recite. We we could make we could make a profession of faith. We knew it. We we heard it, and then all of a sudden, years later, when this person's in their thirties, something happened. Rebirth, and everything changed. Everything changes. There has to be rebirth. There must be rebirth. Here's what's interesting. This is something real interesting, and I'll try to pick it up a little bit. But uh, theologian Diedrich Bonhoeffer uh, makes a great observation when he visits the, the, the America when he was living during the World War II and Nazis and all that mess. He talked about deception and self-delusion of false prophets and false, even false teachings. And he, he refers to it as cheap grace. He made an observation that there are many churches in America, there are many denominations in America that have a profession of faith. In other words, to get to join their church, to join their denomination, they would have to make a profession of faith. They have it. And he said, these churches also 
teach grace, that you're saved by grace. So they are taught that. They're taught that. So they have it, they're taught that. And they're even taught good works, obedience. But the problem he observed was they're not born again. They're not born again. Isn't that interesting? They said they're not born again. They're taught grace, but they're not born again. There is no conversion, true conversion in their life. Listen to what Pro Proverbs says about this. It says, there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes and yet are not washed with their, and yet they're not washed from their filthiness. Proverbs 30 to 12. So they're 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 cleansed in their own eyes, but they're not washed from their filthiness. That means they're not. There's no rebirth. That hasn't had uh, no conversion has happened. How do we know? How do you know that your profession of faith is real? How do you know that? You don't. You you can't resist it. Your life is changed. You, you have a desire, this desire for Christ. And just like we mentioned, when you sin, you, you hate yourself. And you're convicted all the time. You're convicted of doing this. You're convicted of doing that. You're convicted of hanging around your old friends. They wanted to get drunk and womanized. You're convicted of that. You're not Mr. Goody Two-Shoes or Mrs. Goody. No, no. You cannot be a part of that. You just don't want to be a part of that. There's a real change going on, and it's starting. You're not totally, you're not perfect. You're not, you're not reborn, and you're perfect. It, it is a process of being made holy, and you'll spend the rest of your life on this walk of sanctification. And what? We will stumble, and we will fall. We will repent, and we will believe the promises. That's what we're called to do. How do you know that your profession of faith is real? You're sitting here right now. You're sitting here right now because you want to be fed the Word of God. And if Pastor Manny or this church does not feed you the Word of God, you'll find another church. And good for you. Good for you. How do you know that your profession of faith is real? Well, listen to what Romans 10, 8, verses 8 through 10 says. Paul writes it. Through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, The word is near in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For, by, for with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. Your mind is impacted. Your soul is impacted. Your body is impacted. Your behavior changes. Changes start happening. Listen, if you can come worship, and some of you have been coming for a while, and praise God for that. But if you could sit through a worship and not get anything out of it, we need to talk. We need to talk because you're not allowing the Holy Spirit to take possession of you, to allow, to, to, in, to engulf you. If, 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 oh, I've heard this passage before. 
I know what it says, man. Pastor Matty cannot teach me anything. I already know it. That's not the point. The point is we're here to worship him. And by that, the Holy Spirit will fill us with his glory. And then we will rejoice. And we will continue to worship him. That is how you know. And if we have problems worshiping him, that we need to, what do they say, come to Jesus meeting type deal? <laughs> you need to go talk to him. Talk to him. Say, Lord, how come I don't feel your holy presence? With all the other believers, with the, with the assembly of all the other believers. There are people that can proclaim Jesus as Lord, but they won't come worship. They don't. They, they have all these excuses. Look. Let me tell you, and you know this, Satan will trick us. He will come up with excuses for reasons you cannot come to church. So we're, we're, you're saying that Jesus is Lord first and foremost in your life, but you have all these excuses as to why you cannot come worship on Sunday with the assembly of believers as you are called to do. You have all these excuses. But God knows. He knows work or he knows something else is going on I would challenge you especially you that are listening via live stream I would challenge you to ask God if your excuse is good enough or does your excuse is, is it merely an excuse that you're putting up here before God are you doing everything you can to come and worship him do not let anything interfere with that. Are there reasons why people don't come and worship legitimate ones? Ah, of course there are. But there are few and far between. And when it happens, it's rare. Not to anyone that, that worships him. That is how you know. That is how you know that God is working in your life. You're transformed supernaturally by the power of God. That's true faith. We rejoice in knowing that. Here's what we rejoice in knowing, that our sins, every sin of, sin of God's elect, every sin of, sin of God's people, that would be you and me, we who believe in Christ, has been laid upon the champion, the great champion of our salvation. And by his atonement, he brings our sin. He takes our sin away at the cross. Because of the atoning work of Jesus Christ, our Lord, there is no sin in God's book against us at final judgment against you. As we continue to go on this path of righteousness, on this, this being made holy, we can be disciplined by our Father. We can do something and be disciplined by our Father. But God the judge, our Father the judge, will not condemn us. So he disciplines us so we can get back on the path to call you out. Even at this moment, if you're not paying attention. But God the Father will not condemn us. Isn't that wonderful? That is so glorious. That, that is, that's why we're here. We're here because of his love for us. We have been absolved, acquitted of our guilt. We have been, the guilt of, of the guilt we feel because we sinned, even though we're forgiven, we're still tainted. You know, we still did it. 
Even that guilt is removed. As far as what the East is from the West. That is a glorious thing. See, if you're in Christ, if you were a Christ follower, a true believer, as Johann Sebastian Bach lived his life for the glory of God, you too must live your life for the glory of God. That is why you were created. When you live your life for the glory of God, you're doing what you were created to do. So what happens when you do that? You are complete. You are at peace. You have found the love that you've been seeking all your life. You rejoice. Live your life for the glory of God. If you're not in Christ, final judgment is at stake. If you're just holding off thinking, well, I'm going to wait right before I die or something. I'll wait for some major catastrophe. And I'll pull it, pull him out of my back pocket. If you're thinking like that, we're praying for you. The love of God, the love of God is in us. The love of God is glorious and wonderful. And we must never forget that the proper response to the call of Jesus for salvation's sake requires a verbal com confession or profession that he is Lord accompanied by moral obedience. That is the will of the Father. Let's pray. Gracious one. You've been listening to Manny Alanese, pastor at St. Stephen's Chapel. For more information about our church, visit our website at ststephenschapel.org or call us at 210-241-5969. Please join us prayerfully and financially as we seek to glorify God by preaching his word and spreading the gospel of grace in boldness and selflessness.